All right, guys. I know I'm uh, hitting you with a fire hose, and um, you know, I remember once uh, teaching at this. Uh, I was, I do a lot of work for you know Luis Palau. Uh, yeah. So Luis is a mentor of mine, very dear friend, um, and I work for the Palau Association, so I do a lot of speaking for them. Um, besides leading Door of Hope, and uh, um, Luis uh, used to introduce me. He, he'd always say, he's like, I'd like to introduce to you uh, my good friend, Josh. He looks like a criminal, but he's a godly man. <laughs> so funny, he invited me in to, uh, um, to start doing, I do all the teaching for him when he got cancer. He asked me to start teaching for him um, at the, their kind of their main fundraisers. That there's three of them a year, and I swear he picked me just because he wanted to mess with his donors. Like that was like the only reason that he did it. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, I miss that guy. He's a he's a great man. Um, I want to close out uh, today, and uh, um, I want to focus in on the final statement from the cross that Jesus spoke. And what do you think of the, anyone know what the final words that Jesus spoke from the cross was? Actually, isn't it? Um, It's actually, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, It is finished, obviously, as the culmination um, of everything. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Uh, But Luke records that after all was finished, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Nowhere in the scripture uh, does it say, that, nowhere in the gospel counts to say that Jesus died. I mean, he died, he did. Obviously, the epistles declare his, his death is, is something that we understand. But like the early church, when they referred to death, they would refer to uh, believers as having what? Gone to sleep. And that Jesus shows himself in this final word in complete control. Uh, there is a calm confidence. It is The work has been done. And Father, I'm ready to be with you again. I'm, I'm uh, an entrusting, like a child, entrusting himself into the, to the arms of his Father. It's very beautiful, but it also speaks to the heart of what it means to be image bearers of God. I'm going to explain that in just a second. I want to ask you guys a question. I'm not going to have any slides up for this one. Uh, there's a famous quote that's attributed to Augustine. I'm not totally convinced it. Uh, I, I had a hard time tracking down. You know, quotes get changed and switched up so often that they can bear very little resemblance to the original. Uh, but the quote, uh, the the... The heart of this quote is something that I think is often believed um, and, uh, and kind of held to pretty tenaciously by believers, and it's this. The one who has God has everything, and the one who has everything but God has nothing. The one who has God has everything, and the one who has everything but God has nothing. Let me ask you a question. How many of you guys believe that's a true statement? Yeah, majority of you. I love asking this question at pastors' conferences because it just makes me happy inside. Um, it's actually not true. Uh, now, if you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, it's, uh, well, first of all, anytime anyone on the stage asks you a question, they always mean the opposite of what they're saying. So, uh, so the second half of the statement is very true. The one who has everything but God has, has nothing. But the first half of the statement is not true. The one who has God has everything. At least not according to God himself. Because the first thing that God says over humanity in the unfallen state in the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, it's a zoom in on day 6 of the creation story. And we're told that there is this strange a mysterious gap between the creation of man and woman. Now, Genesis 1 is very clear. Day 6 says God created 
man or humanity in his image, male and female, he created them. So the image bearers is not man himself, but it is man and woman together become the image bearer of God. And in this strange gap in Genesis 2, this time gap when Adam is alone in the garden, God, who just, we're just got done being told in Genesis 1 over and over again, something very profound about God's creative act, and that is that God was satisfied with what he made. Not just satisfied, but it would say, and God saw what he had made, and it was what? Good. And it closes with, and it was very good. Very good. But now, here is Adam. He has God all to himself. He is in a very good creation, and sin has not yet entered the story. And yet, the first thing that God says over Adam is what? It is not good that man be alone. But wait a minute. Adam is not alone. He has God. And he has God all to himself. And yet he does not have everything. What does that mean? Because is not God the one who possesses everything that we need to exist? Yes, our ground of being is found in the one who is life himself. However, God did not create us to simply be alone with him. He created us to know him through the other. And the other is what I like to refer to as the neighbor. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandments, what was Jesus' answer? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he said the second is like the first, and that is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And what that means is that one cannot look away from his neighbor, and your neighbor is whoever is sitting beside you, behind you, or in front of you at any given moment, in any given day. Your neighbor is everybody that's not you, in other words. That you cannot look away from the face of your neighbor without looking away from the face of God himself. That Jesus, in those final words, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is that he said in his high priestly prayer of John 17, Father, I am ready to return to the glory that I once had with you. I'm ready to be reunited with you. And yes, he and the Father are one God. And there's a mystery in that, and it can't be explained. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, please don't describe the Trinity as an egg, because it's just bad. It's a mystery. It's like quantum mechanics. It works, we just don't know how it works, okay? Uh, and what I can say about the Trinity is this. Whatever it means, it means at its essence that God is a community within himself. That God in the essence of his being is relationship. And that to be an image bearer of God means that we are relational beings. We are made for relationship. Jesus closes his work. It's finished, Father. Father, why have you forsaken me? In other words, there was some kind of mysterious rift within the Godhead itself that we can never penetrate. We'll never understand that. The one true God experienced some kind of relational rift. Jesus tasted isolation and aloneness. He tasted hell. Because here's the thing. Heaven, I would describe as a place where relationship is fully restored in three directions. It's a relationship that's become right with God. It's a relationship that's become right with others. And then and only then does it become a relationship that is right with self. Hell is a place where relationship does not exist. Where you live eternally in the falsehood of the shadow self. This is why it is not resurrection into eternal life in hell, it's resurrection into a second death. Because the ground of being is God himself in relationship with God. Hell is a place where relationship does not exist. Hell doesn't mean out of the presence of God in terms of 
you're way away from him and he doesn't know you're there. Hell is absolutely the full presence of God without the possibility of relationship with him. It is isolation. Hell is a place that is contained by God himself who says in his mercy, sin shall go no farther. But it is also a place where the tragic reality that there are some who would say no to God's yes. And God will give them what is intrinsically theirs. His gift to them is you shall be your own. But that is not what we were meant for. Because man is not meant to be alone. And so what God is saying over Adam is not that God doesn't have everything that is necessary for living. But he is saying man is not complete without others like himself. Because we are not a trinity. Unless you have mental health issues. <laughs> so, so this is, a, this is something that's extremely important for us to understand because American Christianity, um, the great reckoning that happened during COVID and the massive abandonment of millennials. See, our church is a church that is, uh, when we started, we went from zero to a thousand in three years and, it, and we only had 12 children in the entire church because the average age was 18 to 24. Um, and it was primarily new conversions. But the greatest loss for me and the greatest heartbreak for me as a pastor is that the largest group of people that have abandoned the faith after COVID have been that same demographic. The largest religious group, affiliated group in America right now is what, do you know? The nuns. And I don't mean the sisters. <laughs> I mean those that affiliate with nothing. Um, that's the fastest growing up until what's crazy is that um, in the, I think it was even in the 80s, um, evangelicals actually held the largest religious affiliated group in, in America. And that has now reversed to where we are moving. That's why, if you guys, everyone's always freaked out by Portland. But all you have to know is this, is America has always just been about 50 years behind Europe. And Portland is what is coming, which is a truly post-Christian country. And a post-Christian country can freak you out. But it also has some incredible benefits, as I said last night. It's a very fruitful thing. Because sometimes we have to begin again to break free from the bad theology and the bad ideas of God that actually cause generations to eventually drift away from the once awakening that parents had. Because children cannot live on the fumes of their father's faith. And one of the deepest needs that we need to return to in the church is a right understanding that there is no me and Jesus without my neighbor. So important. And I think that what we have turned the church into over the last 40 years is, is an is a incredible, this is what I would say about the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement was an incredible return to a personal belief in the living Christ and the authority of Scripture. But we must remember that the Jesus movement was a revolution um, within a counterculture. It was a counterculture within a counterculture. It was hippies, which the church, the mainline denominational churches, had essentially written off as, like, like many of you have with a place like Portland or San Francisco, as unsavable. The hippies were like, they went to hell in a handbasket. They've rejected our morality, our ethics, our, our tradition, and they're chasing after drugs and sex and rock and roll. And in the middle of that movement, when hippiedom began to show that it was not the final solution, it wasn't the answer, uh, the great, you know, the great end of the hippie age, uh, some of you probably know, um, actually happened not far from here. It became the great emblem of the, the death of, of hippiedom. And that was the Altamont Speedway concert with the Rolling Stones where the Hells Angels stabbed that black man um, in front of the Stones while they were playing. And it was supposed to be Woodstock and all love and peace and it ended in violence. The whole day was marked by endless violence. Um, and it was, it was the facade and the, 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 the lack of 
contentment with this path actually didn't lead us where we wanted, became this great symbol that this was not, this was not the, the salvation that we had hoped for. In that same time frame was when God brought a great movement, and the movement came in the most unlikely place, in the bowels of American pop culture, which was Hollywood, in Orange County, and things like Calvary Chapel, and Vineyard, and all these, these incredible movements where the Holy Spirit is moving and saving. I mean, I remember watching a documentary on the life and death of a hippie preacher um, about Lonnie Frisbee. Calvary Chapel would not be Calvary Chapel uh, without, without Lonnie. And Lonnie was a deeply troubled young man who found Jesus on an acid trip in Joshua Tree. Do you guys know who Lonnie Frisbee is? Um, and Lonnie, Lonnie was basically erased from Vineyard and Calvary's, um, Calvary's history because his great struggle was homosexuality. He ultimately died of, of AIDS in San Francisco, I believe alone in the 80s. And what was tragic about it, he wasn't a man that ever said, this is a lifestyle that I embrace. In fact, he, he kept it hidden because what he didn't find was victory over that area of sin. But he was the one that God used to bring all the young adults to the church that Chuck said, I don't know how to reach these people. And yet that broken vessel, because of his own brokenness, instead of becoming a conduit of grace that could have maybe helped him choose a different path, he became erased um, and pretended like he played no part in the story. It's part of our tragic reality of how we want our saints to be clean, don't we? <laughs> um, but what I find fascinating is that the hippies got saved radically. And there's, remember, you see images of, maybe some of you participated in this. Took your records, took your books. I went to the Henry Miller um, Memorial Library yesterday in Big Sur. Before I was a Christian, really, really loved Henry Miller. I know he's kind of a dirty old man. He's a great writer. I still really like him. <laughs> but, you know, all those hippies that got saved, they took their Henry Miller books and their Kerouac and they took their Allen Ginsberg, and they took their Timothy Leary, and all this literature, and they took their, they took their Led Zeppelin records, and their, and their Beatles records, and they were like, this is the work of the devil, and they threw it in the burn barrels. And I just want to close today's message with, this is what has happened. Now all we have is Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> and we need to repent immediately. <laughs> The world gets Picasso, and we get the painter of lights. And they're not even coming from the right direction. <laughs> Here's my point. Is there was much incredible that came out of that movement. But that deep conviction, I don't want to be associated with what, with what I once was associated with, which was bringing me down, the drugs, the, the sex. It always, and the best thing to do is just get rid of it. But that generation, what they were able to give to their kids was not the experience of spiritual awakening. All they could give them was the form, which is the, we don't listen to rock and roll in this house. We don't celebrate Halloween. We don't, we don't, we don't go to R-rated movies. And so we create a new ladder. And that ladder becomes the system by which we are now defined as Christians. And it's, we don't drink, we don't swear, we had purity culture. You don't sleep around. But all that stuff is blown up in our faces. And people say, I don't care about any of that because I just want to know if there's a God who actually loves me and how can I know him. And see, I think the misstep was this, is that though there was a return to the real Jesus and the real gospel, there was still a complete embracing within that generation of what was a cultural embrace, which was the rise of the individual. The rise of the individual over the community. And there was also an embracing of, the, of a fundamental distrust of authority. And so you have a church movement that's built on a distrust of authority, a belief in personal relationship with Jesus over responsibility to the community and a radical cutting off from the world in such a way that it forced us down a corridor that turned Christianity into a parallel universe 
to a world which we no longer understand and no longer know how to save. And I believe that if we came back to God's first words over Adam in the garden, it's not good that man be alone, and realize that the missing component is that my love for God is defined by how I love and serve the people around me, and that there are no enemies, because we are all enemies of the cross, and these are the very people that Jesus has died for. Do you know that the church is the only institution in human history that exists for the good of those who rest outside of its walls? And see, the reason I share this with you is because these final words from Jesus were played out in real time for me in my relationship with my father, Alexander. Because my dad would have been a man that I was convinced when I first became a believer is beyond the pale of salvation. He wanted nothing to do with the gospel. Anytime I brought up Jesus or the gospel, he'd just cuss at me and hang up. That's why I stopped talking to him for five years. And the reason I got back in contact with him is because of the conviction of this very theme, which was that the Lord said, you cannot be a spiritual father to all these kids and refuse to reconcile with your own father. And that was when I was like, okay, Jesus, you win. You always do. And I began to reach out to my dad. But here is what I saw is that the gospel and the community, our community, of, uh, that we participate in as a church, why the church is so necessary and why so many have abandoned the church today is because they thought that the gospel was mainly about their relationship with Jesus. And I always say, you know, people are like, what's your relationship like with Jesus? They're like, it's personal. And I'm like, oh, it should be personal, but it's never private. It's never private. And that personal faith is meant to be played out, and the only way that we can witness to a world that is lost and hurting is not by giving to them a morality that they can't keep, nor can we. It's not going to be found in the Christian right, because you can't legislate people into Christianity. We must remember that Jesus lived under a time of a terrible <laughs> empire, uh, and says, you know, honor the king. Live peaceably if possible with all people. What was the purpose of those statements? It wasn't, it wasn't for any other reason than this. Do whatever it takes to live as peaceably as possible so that you can share the gospel as freely as possible with as many people as possible. That's, I've never said that before. I hope it's recorded. I'd like to write that down. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think that this is, the, this is the point, is that we've got to come back to, a, to an apostolic faith which is a return to a radical vulnerability that speaks out, not just before God, but for one another, our absolute need, not only for God, but for each other. This is why we don't just confess our sins into the air, we, we share them with others, because it keeps us in a place of humility and reminds us that we are just broken, hungry beggars telling other beggars where they can get some bread. Amen. That's it. That's the beauty of the gospel. My dad, as I began to push into relationship with him, what I found is that when we actually take the time to believe on behalf of those that don't believe, when we refuse to give up hope for those that have no hope, when we love those that are unlovable, that what is impossible for us becomes possible because of God's power working through us in spite of us. I'm going to share with you this story, and this was really challenging for me, but, um, oh, someone's calling me. I hate technology. I, want, I just got, someone just got me this watch. Why do we want another, I'm, I'm, I reject it. Today will be the last day I wear it, um, because all it does is remind me that I'm fat, I don't walk enough, um, and sends me text messages. It's like, I, I love ending the day, and you're like, you didn't walk your step. Like, shut up. You don't know anything. <laughs> the devil. This is not the Holy Spirit. It's the devil right there. <clears throat> but I, I think that this is so important for us, us to grasp is that I, I watched this. I would say that the, the words of Jesus, the rest that's possible in him, 
couldn't, I couldn't, I was stuck on this chapter in the book. It was the final chapter. I couldn't write it. I didn't know what was wrong. I couldn't write it. And I was a year late on my transcript to, to Penguin. Um, and in, I, I mean, surprised they didn't drop me. Uh, but the reason I couldn't write it is because God needed me to live it before it could be written. And it was lived through my dad's death. So my dad, next week will be the two-year um, anniversary of my father's death. Um, he died on February 8th, 22. And, and, and here's, here's what happened. 2020 hits. I'm in Florida. I'm speaking for the plows. And uh, um, I, I'm flying home. And I get a call while I'm in the airport. And this man that's on the phone um, named Frank and he tells me he's a chaplain at a hospital in Soldatna. And that he has been sharing the gospel faithfully for over three years to Alexander White. Now, this is the mystery of God's providence. I always say that God's sovereignty is simply his freedom to do what he wants. And his freedom to do what he wants in alignment with his, with his personhood, with his character with his purposes. Uh, and God has chosen, you want to talk about election? He has elected to love sinners in their sin. That's a powerful elective move by God. And Frank tells me, I've been sharing the gospel with your dad all the time. So I'm like, that's amazing. He goes, well, this is the really crazy thing. Your dad prayed to receive Jesus. I'm like, what? And uh, so Frank tells me the story. I said, Frank, tell me a little bit about yourself. He's like, I actually was um, a pastor in the Bay Area. I actually don't know. I haven't talked to him in quite a while. But I don't know the details. But he felt called by God to move with his family, his wife and his kids, to Alaska and to plant a church. And he planted a church and it failed. It's a failed church planter. And he needed to figure out something to provide for his family. And so he takes a job as a chaplain at the hospital. And he goes, Josh, here's the crazy thing. I was so heartbroken that the church failed, but I realized the moment I became a chaplain at the hospital that there is a very good reason why my church failed because the people I like to minister to are people like your dad, and they don't go to church. They can't go to church. And people like your dad, even if they could go to church, couldn't pay me anything because I think, if I remember correctly, your dad lives on $800 a month, which, you know, that's cigarettes, vodka, and a pizza a week. That was what my dad literally lived on for the last three years. And, and he goes, the gift of being a chaplain in this hospital is that I have found my church. And my church is the church of those that the church doesn't believe is, are, 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 are able to save that this is the community of broken people and it has been the most life-giving job. And I was like, Frank, this all makes so much sense because my dad had never been to church in his life and I was tripping out that I had been spending time with him and he seemed to have this weird knowledge of the gospel. Like he would, I would talk to him about the gospel and each time I visit him, his like knowledge was a little more in depth but I wasn't sharing it with him and I couldn't, I thought it was like supernatural or that I was just way more efficient than I thought I was. But it turns out that it's because my dad just never tells anyone any information and that Frank had been sharing faithfully with him. And this is where God used my dad's own alcoholism, his drinking himself to death as a way of escaping his deep fear of death which would put him in the hospital, in ICU, again and again. And every time he was in ICU, the best time to communicate with my dad was when he was in the hospital, because in the hospital he wasn't allowed to drink. And so he would have moments of clarity as he would be nursed back to health. And he would be in the hospital often for a week, sometimes two weeks at a time. And in those, every time, he was getting daily church from Frank. So I call my dad. And, I, and by the way, I will be forever indebted to the church in Soldatna for the way that those nurses and doctors, they function like the church ought to function because 
You know what you do in the ER? I'm one of my best friends, the ER doctor. You don't ask questions of why someone's there. You're homeless, doesn't matter. You go in, policy in American hospitals, and this is a gift actually, is that if you go in, that is a human being who's hurting, and our responsibility is to care for them. And in Soldatna, there were a lot of people like my father, because people moved to Alaska to get off the grid, as I call it. <laughs> I don't think my dad ever paid taxes in his life. I love that he was once like ranting about, about um, the, the president, um, uh, about President Obama. I'm like, Dad, I'm sorry, you don't even get it. You actually don't even, you're not allowed to even talk about this because you've never voted in your life. Like, you're, you, you, don't, you're, you, you don't count, actually, in the political conversation because <laughs> you just live on state assistance and you've spent your life as a drug dealer. I, was like, I don't understand why we're even having a conversation. Like, you're not a Republican, you're not a Democrat. I don't know, you're Grizzly Adams, dude. Like, just shut up. <laughs> and so my dad... I call my dad, and, and I, I was like, Dad, I heard, you, I heard you prayed to receive Jesus. And he goes, yeah, I did. <laughs> and I go, I go, what's wrong? And he goes, I'm not sure it's stuck. <laughs> and I said, you're not sure it's stuck? And, I sa and, and uh, Frank had told me that Dad was having doubts about it. And I said, well... Is that because you can't walk and you're still an alcoholic and you're still a chain smoker and you're still dying and because you live alone and you don't have anything to, to give anyone? And he goes, he goes, thanks for making your old man feel good. <laughs> uh, and he goes, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and I just said, Dad, I promise you that God's grace is stickier than your doubt. And I said, Jesus isn't interested in you giving him your alcoholism or your cigarette habit. What he's interested in is you giving him you. And that comes with all those things. And then it's your responsibility to give him the responsibility to sort that out as he sees fit. And the fact is, is that you're not going to stop drinking at this point because you're dying, Dad. Like, you're going to die. And you need to understand that. And you, if you stop drinking right now, you probably would die instantly of a heart attack or a stroke. And he, was, he got really quiet. Um, and death scared him to death. I mean, literally scared him to death. And uh, he, uh, he goes, you know, I, I know that's true, son. I said, that's awesome. And he goes, Josh, I, I, I pray every day. And I said, oh, that's so good. And he goes, but can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure. And he goes, is it all right if I call him the big fella? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I actually had to think about it for a second. Um, I was like, uh, I'm like, as long as you started with Jesus? And he goes, I did. And uh, I go, yeah, I, I, I'm, I think that's probably just fine. And he goes, he goes good, because that's how I think about him, this big fella. Um, and he just told me he loved me, and we hung up. So that was, dad gets saved, amazing. But he's still in and out of the hospital for another year. And then I finally have this moment where I can't get a hold of him, not answering his phone. And I was kind of nervous, and it's COVID. Um, and um, he ends up in the hospital, COVID for months, and almost didn't make it, but came through. And then in 22, I got a call from a doctor. I'll never forget it. It was like February 6th, um, or excuse me, February 7th. And the doctor said, hey, Josh, this is Dr. So-and-so. I talked to him many times. I had power of attorney at this point. And he's like, your dad's back in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, and I go, and? And he's like, his organs are shutting down. He's not going to make it. He's like, I think it would be cruel to try to intubate him. I think we need to put him on comfort care. And I was like, and he goes, you have to give me permission to do that. 
I don't know about you guys, but that seemed like too much to ask of anyone. To give someone permission to let someone die seemed like a responsibility that was too much. You know, you're like, I've been through enough with this man. Like, I can't, I can't be responsible for that. But I knew that if Alexander couldn't do it for himself, that I would have to. So I said, well, how long do I have? And he said, he said, you know, your dad is, you know, your dad, he's tough. Like he could go a few days, he could, but he could go in a few hours. And I said, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to get there. So I got off the phone with him and I was just like shell shocked. It was 6.30 at night. And I like, I told Darcy, and I'm like, I got to go right now. And so I got online, and I found a flight to Anchorage that night at 10 p.m. out of Seattle, and it's 6.30 in Portland, and that's a three-hour drive. I made the drive in two hours. And yes, I definitely live by the spirit of the law on that drive. Um, and I was on a flight uh, to, to Anchorage, and then on my flight to Anchorage, I had to book another flight to Kenai from Anchorage. I landed in the middle of a blizzard. Um, got on this small plane that's terrifying that you feel like you're going to die the whole time. I land in Soldatna um, at 6 in the morning, get in a car in the blizzard and drive, drive straight to the hospital, and I'm by my dad's side at 7 a.m. And I walk into that room, and my dad, it was the best I had ever seen him. Like in a, probably over a decade, he was clean, there's no bad smells, it's like just the whirring of the machines keeping him alive. And he was, he was kind of sleeping a little bit, like agitated in his sleep, but overall peaceful. The only evidence of his ravaged body was his leg was sticking out from underneath his gown, revealing sores from edema, you know. And, then I, and so I just covered his leg, and I sat down by him, and I just said, hey, Dad, I'm here. And I took my phone out of my pocket, and I'd written this song called Home a week before. And it was this weird song. It was a very sad song. And I didn't know it was, like, I remember Darcy and I were kind of having a little rough spell. And I'm like, is this for my wife? Is this for God? Is this my dad? And then sitting by my dad, I realized, uh, oh, now I know. And I took the phone out, and I put the song on. And the moment my voice came out of the phone singing, it woke my dad up, and he just immediately started crying. He couldn't open his eyes. He just was crying, and he was trying to pull the breathing tube from his mouth, from his nose, and I just said, Dad, it's okay. I'm here, and I was able to communicate with him. I said, I go, Dad, if you know, if you understand that I'm here with you, you just squeeze my hand twice, and he squeezed my hand twice. And I just sat there with him, and I talked with him and told him how much I loved him. And I realized that now I think like my dad actually waited for me. I think his fear of death was so great that he just could not cross that threshold alone. And, you know, um, we, we sat there, and I just remember it was so surreal, my father crying, and I, I just I couldn't even cry. I was like so, it was just everything was so surreal in that moment. And uh, um, he started getting really restless. I said, Dad, are you... Are you in pain? If you are, just squeeze my hand once. He squeezed my hand once. So they can't. I called the nurse, and they gave him morphine. He went back to sleep. I was talking with the nurses. One nurse came in. This is my father. This is classic dad. Like She came in, and she kissed his forehead, and she said, I'm going to miss you, old timer. I guess I'm not going to get that date you promised. I'm like, she's like 19 or something. I'm like, sweet Lord. Um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you know like, he, was, he was weirdly charming man like and just yeah just any woman he met he's just like like he's like when I walk again I'm gonna take you out to dinner little lady I'm like it's your granddaughter like no you're not gonna do that dad <laughs> but uh, but just the care the the familiarity that these people had with my father and he was difficult I mean I watched him like yell at nurses I mean he's he's a curmudgeon for sure uh and a few hours later, there's a male nurse in there, and he said, hey, 
your dad's breathing's getting really shallow. It's close. It's about 3 o'clock. And I said, I said, can I just be alone with him? And he left the room, and I put the song on again. And this time when I put the song on, he opened his eyes, and he, and he panicked. And I stood above my father, and I looked I looked directly into his eyes. I was like, like this close to his face. And I'm watching a man basically suffocate. And I felt like I can't, I can't help him. And it was unbearable. I wanted to look away. And it was in that moment that I realized, like, I am helping him because I'm here. I'm reversed what his absence has found its closure in my return to him, to help him in his journey to meet the one that saved me and brought me home. And as he looked into my eyes, he, um, first he's panicking, and I just put my face, hand on his face, and I said, Dad, it's okay. Like, I'm like, it's time, it's time, just, it's time. And that may seem like a weird thing to say to someone that's dying, but it is a strange mystery how reluctant life is to surrender. Um, and as I touched his face, he became calm and peaceful. And literally, before the words of the last chorus of the song, he looked into my eyes, and he just took this final breath, and he was gone. He was gone. And I've contemplated this many times, and I've, <laughs> I've been asked to teach on it many times, and every time it's like, oh, I don't know if I can share this story again. Um, but there was this beauty and this peace that came in that moment and a full understanding of the concept that I like to refer to as the good death. That there is death that leads to life. And there is life that's lived that's basically dead. My dad entered the good death. That all the suffering, all this stuff, but God kept my dad living out, eking out, barely eking out an existence for the last few years because God is patient. And he pursued my father all the way to the grave. And I believe that when my dad looked into my eyes, what he saw, when I saw him become peaceful, at first I was like, oh, it's because his son is with him. But I realized that wasn't why he became calm. I believe the reason he became calm is because what he saw when he looked into my eyes was not me at all. I believe he saw Jesus. And this is why we cannot look away from our neighbor without looking away from the face of God. Because you may be the very face of God to your neighbor. And how God makes himself known. And the rest that my dad experienced in that final moment required that my dad enter into the good death of letting go of the life of pain and heartbreak and all of his false dreams and the shadow man that he lived so much of his life being. And he became the thief on the cross, the thief that became a sheep in that moment. And he tasted real rest. But it wasn't just him that tasted rest. I found rest. Because it was a holy moment. It's a sacred moment that you can't escape. And you see, when our lives are lived with this constant consumed with our own thing, with our own journey, and we, and we put off the idea that God, like, how can I be usable in someone else's life? You don't know, Josh, what a mess I am, or how much, what harm I've caused, or the trouble I'm in right now. Listen, Jesus knows all of it. He's not surprised by any of it. 
And that's the very kind of person that he wants to use because it's the only kind of person there is. Because I don't care how together your life is, at the end of the day, you're just a broken sinner like me who needs grace. And like me, you are a broken sinner who is capable of being a conduit of grace because he loves you. And so guys, I just want you to know that you don't have to hide your crap from people. <laughs> um, and all you're doing in hiding is avoiding living. And you can't think that you're okay with Jesus if you refuse to let other people into your lives. You know, women's conferences, it's all talk and love and emotion and just, it's, it's overwhelming. I've, I've had to do sound for a lot of women's events at my church. Um, but I'm always struck by how much easier it is for them to just get real, get into their stuff, like move quickly into their pain and their, that doesn't like, oh, it's like they just talk too much. It's, calm down, ladies. Um, but man, we could learn a lot. That's <laughs> why God says it is man and woman together that form the image of God. But that's not just about husband and wife. It's not just about man and woman. It's about human beings with other human beings that we live out the reality of our faith and our faith becomes real only when we allow others into our lives in the name of Jesus. Because when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so I wanna just, um, wanna close this time together right now with, um, with that song. I'm gonna try to sing that song that I wrote for my dad. And then I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to call you guys to just respond to this, this question. It's the most fundamental question that one can answer. Because if the goal of Christianity is not arriving but knowing, I just simply ask you the question that Jesus asked Philip. Do you know me? Because, and I'm not talking about do you know about me. I'm saying do you know him? And do you know him? And the evidence of your knowing him is probably going to be revealed in are you known by others as well and this question if you can't answer yes I, I i want to tell you that you don't have to leave here today without being able to say yes because jesus saves and he is saving and he will continue to save our lives as we continually, like prodigal sons, return again and again to the heart of the Father. It's just a matter of like, why am I sitting here in the pig pen when my Father has everything I need? It's just, that's why repentance is not a one-time event. It's a, it's a change of mind, a change of direction, but it should be a turn that happens so regularly that it becomes more like a dance, a twirl, if you will. Because we are constantly, every day is the question arises in our hearts. Will today I return to the Father? And tomorrow you'll have to answer that question again. And I don't care about what you do tomorrow. What I care about is what you do right now. Because what you do right now actually will help determine what you do tomorrow. And so I want you to know that if God can save Alexander, he can save any of us. And that if God is willing to use a man like me to be a conduit in my own father's life, he is willing to use all of you to be conduits as well. And all of your pain and all of your hurt and all of the things that you have gone through, whatever you're, because listen, I know life isn't just difficult, it's freaking impossible. It's actually terminal if I was to be technical. But God is good. And I know that. And because I know that, I'm able to navigate the impossibility of life with a lightness of foot. I don't take the world or myself very seriously, but I take Jesus and his grace really seriously. And that's what I pray over you guys. So I'm gonna share this song and then I'm gonna pray for you guys, okay? Awkward transition. All right. I'm glad I'm not having to move that giant pulpit right now. That would be awkward. All right.
It's funny, a lot of us are comfortable not talking, but none of us are very comfortable with dead silence. Thank you. So this song is called Home, and this is the song that I played for my dad. Some days I just fall apart So many worries haunt this heart Some days I don't know where to start Some days I can lose you in the dark Some days I can open up to you out the dark and all feels new and some days my world goes back to blue some days I feel I'm losing you and home will you guide me home and oh Tell me I'm not alone Sometimes I feel I'm losing ground Forgiving wrongs still hunt me down And sometimes I can drain a room of joy Sometimes I can't hear you through the noise Home, will you guide me home? And oh, tell me I'm not alone. Remind me that it's all right to cry. Remind me if I hurt, I'm alive Remind me that you're by my side Remind me that the light makes darkness hide Forgive me for the ways I drank you blind Forgive me for the pain behind your eyes Give me for the sound of love that hides. Give me, I see you. I'm always by your side. Always by your side. Some days I'm surprised when I wake up To open up my eyes to your touch I'm going to ask you guys um, to take a step of faith today. And I just want to just begin before we even bow heads because I believe that Stepping into the light 
requires a courage. It's funny, we make people bow their heads and close their eyes so that people will feel more comfortable. In other words, so that people feel like they can actually still be hidden. Or maybe it's meant to make the preacher feel good so they can pretend that someone responded. <laughs> it's not my responsibility to make anyone respond to anything. Um, I don't know why preachers worry about it. But I would just simply say this. If you're a person today that just you want to surrender your life in such a way to experience grace in the way that I've been describing it, you just feel like, man, I am not, I'm not pushing into intimacy with Jesus. I'm not allowing people to know who I am the way that I, I want to. I believe that there are moments where we just have to take a stand. We have to be willing, as Teddy Roosevelt called it, to be the man in the arena, to be willing to fail courageously. The willingness to allow people to see our brokenness, our frailty, our deep need to know that we're loved. And you're that person today. I just want to ask you to stand up right now so I can pray for you. If that's you, just stand up. I'll pray for you. And the reason I have done this before people bow their heads is because I want you to be seen and I want you to know that you are loved. You're loved. You're seen. We see you. Look at you didn't you didn't pass out. <laughs> you didn't die. No, this is the key. This is called the good death. It's dying to our ego, dying to the fears of what people think. And it's asking, Lord, what do you think and what do you want? And how can I be free from the tyranny of my own self? Because what Jesus wants to set you free from, what he wants you to die to, is the lie of what he never intended you to be. So that you can become the man that he's called you to be. For all of you who stood, um, I want to just ask, for those of you that aren't standing, if you could just lay a hand on one of the brothers that are standing. And let's, let's just pray. So I guess all of us can just stand. Because that's one of the things that we're doing is we are uniting with one another and saying, you're not alone in this, and you're no different than me. We are all broken men who need to know that we are loved by Jesus, and we are broken men who struggle with loving well. And I want Jesus to not only show you how much he loves you, but I want you, I want you to experience the creative work of Jesus producing in you something that you cannot produce in yourself. So let me pray over you right now, gentlemen. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for this last couple days with these guys. And I'm just um, so humbled by the opportunity to even be able to share my heart um, and your work in my life with these men. And I pray that in some small way that it creates a deeper hunger and desire to know you and to know your love. And I pray right now, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you would pour out your love on these men, that they would receive into the depths of their being, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Lord, let us not refuse something that cannot be stopped. And so I pray that they would first of all know that they are loved, deeply loved, the perfect holy love. And I pray, secondly, Lord, that you would give them the capacity to love you in return. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would creatively produce in them the ability to be conduits of that love to the unlovable to the hopeless, to the hurting. For all of us have friends and family. We all have our Alexanders in our lives. And if, you're, if you are Alexander today, your yes to Jesus means your ability to bring the yes of Jesus to others. So may today salvation come in a new and fresh way 
even for those that have felt like they've walked with you their whole lives. I pray they would experience you in the power of your spirit in a new way. And Lord, your word says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. And so we say together as men in this room, Jesus, you are Lord. Say with me, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, if you're Lord, that means I am not. If your kingdom is to come, that means my kingdom must go. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these unlikely men. We're all just a bunch of string of zeros. <laughs> but, Jesus, in you, we are perfected in the Son. We praise you for your love. May your forgiveness, your rest, your joy, your provision be what defines us as men in the midst of a difficult world. The days are dark, but God, you are the light of the world, and it only takes a little bit of light to make a room of darkness become illuminated. And so may your light shine through us and in us. We pray this in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me.